0: we welcome you to the Tabernacle podcast brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. So let's Uh, focus our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll read verses 5 through 7 as our text. Paul writes, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You may have heard the phrase, God doesn't call the equipped, but He equips the called. I'm not sure who coined that phrase, but I can tell you this, it's true. It's a truth that encourages me when I feel inadequate with the calling that He's given to me, when I feel overwhelmed with the challenges that I face with the assignment that's been given. The followers of Jesus also experienced this truth throughout the centuries, beginning really at the first disciples. When you think about it, the disciples that Jesus first called were ordinary people just like you and me. They weren't the most highly educated, perhaps didn't have the most charismatic personality, really didn't have great influence over the culture of that day. They didn't have the highest positions of authority. They didn't have a pedigree or resume filled with awards and accomplishments. Yet Jesus called the ordinary to do extraordinary things through them. In church, he's still doing the same thing. He continues to call the ordinary that he can use to do extraordinary things for the cause of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, quite honestly, was not an ordinary person, and he knew it. Hey, have you ever met a preacher? that He was so proud of himself, he could strut sitting down. Have you ever met somebody like that? The Apostle Paul was such, he he was such that he would, he he had such an arrogance about him because he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a man of great learning, trained at the finest school of Jerusalem, a man of great authority. And in that, he thought that he was doing God a wild favor by serving Him. But the Apostle Paul had to come to an understanding in his ministry, what he taught us here in verse number 7 that we have this treasure in an earthen vessel. When Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians, this is his second letter, by the way, he's defending himself. He's defending himself from some horrible accusations made against him by the members of the church, the church that he founded. There were those in the Corinthian church that were questioning his apostleship. He's not really an apostle. He doesn't deserve that authority. Others said he was a hypocrite. 2 Corinthians 11 deals with that. Some in the church accused him of being a shyster or a huckster, only using the gospel to line his own pockets. Others said of Paul that his speech was unappealing and his appearance was unattractive. That's chapter 10, verse number 10. And now Paul is humbled by the accusations, those that were not true, false accusations, that as they weighed upon him. But now Paul's response is different. Rather than in arrogance reminding everyone who he was and putting them in their place, Paul comes with a very humble response. He's not defensive, but he diffuses the accusations by saying, you know what, you're right. I'm just a clay pot. E. Randolph Richards is a theologian who wrote a book entitled Paul Behaving Badly. And he points out that the Apostle Paul was often aggressive and antagonistic. He was caustic. He was often cruel with his words. This was even after the Damascus Road experience. Even after His salvation, He was sometimes hateful and hurtful with the things that He said. Just want a testimony? Ask John Mark and Barnabas. John Mark's no longer profitable. He sent him away and Barnabas who defends him and encourages that John Mark go with him is called in the middle of that. And, and, and Paul, he, he toes the line. He, he, he says, no way, he is not going with us and if you want to take him, you, you take John Mark and you go your way, I'll go mine. That is the antagonism, the, the aggressive nature of the Apostle Paul. Fast forward years, though, and now Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 finds himself recognizing his frailties and his failings. And he recognizes that what he thought was weakness is actually strength because in his weakness he is learning that Christ's strength is made perfect in his life. The truth is that we gather here today and we face the same thing. We face accusations, perhaps not external accusations that tell us how horrible we are, but I do know this for a fact, having pastored all these years and having lived as long as I've lived, there is the internal voice of accusation that's constantly there. It's that accusation of hurtful words that were said to you that you can never remove from, the, uh, from your mind, the, the, the embarrassing moment of your life that you felt like the world was watching you. And there it feeds insecurity. It feeds fear. Perhaps for some of you it's apparent who was not a loving, nurturing parent, but that parent would often tell you that you were not enough, you were not smart enough, you were not good enough, you were not pretty enough, you were not anything that they thought you should be. Perhaps it was a spouse who one day awakened and said, I'm not coming back and I don't want to be with you any longer because you're such a fill-in-the-blank. Whatever it is, those moments weigh into our soul and cause us to feel as if we're inferior, we're inadequate. But here's the good news you're qualified to be used of the Lord. In fact, you are more qualified than the most educated, the most influential. The brightest and the most brilliant, God chooses to use you in your inferiority, in your inadequacy, because you have this treasure in an earthen vessel. I want us for a few moments to consider that. Consider that liberating truth, that God chooses to use us in spite of our failures, in spite of our frailties, in spite of our faults, God chooses to use us. So let's consider three transformative concepts between verses 6 and 7 of what God uses in our lives. And I want you to notice them with me very quickly. Number one, I want you to notice that first concept is the wealth of the treasure. Notice again verse 7, we have this treasure. Some of the word treasure, if you would, please. It's the Greek word thesaurus. it's where we get our English word thesaurus from. You know what a thesaurus is, it's a a repository of words, it's the storehouse of words. The the, the treasure of heaven is stored, we have this treasure in this earthen vessel. Now I want you to notice a few characteristics of the treasure. When you look at the text, you always look at the context, and notice what Paul says in verse number 6. He says, for God who commanded the light, circle the word light if you would please, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge, circle the word knowledge if you would please, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory, circle the word glory if you would please, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you visit the ruins of Corinth, you're going to find that there is a crossroads of cultures of sorts. You would have to pass through Corinth. There's the great Corinthian canal that would be there. If you were going to go to Rome, you would have to pass through there to go. If you were going to come from Turkey or Asia Minor, you would pass through there. Those who would come from from the Middle East, from Jerusalem, would often stay there in the progress of making their journey. As a result, the city of Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. It was a cultural crossroads of sorts. It was made up of those of the Grecian culture, holdovers from the Hellenistic period. It was made up of those who were of the Jewish culture, who moved from Jerusalem. And obviously, at the time of Paul, as a Roman outpost, as a Roman province, there were Romans that were present. And Paul is now speaking to a group, to a congregation, that is made up of different backgrounds, but have something in common. It's called knowing Christ as their Savior. Aren't you glad that the gospel is the unifying factor of the church today? It doesn't matter that you're from East Tennessee or western North Carolina or if you're from up north in Michigan or down south in Florida. If you are here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are unified in one common cause in Jesus Christ. Now notice this. As as, as Paul is writing them, he then begins to speak to them in the content of their past life, in the content of their culture. Verse number 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Immediately when He would say light, the Jews would immediately perk up because for all of their life they have searched for life, light. Genesis chapter 1, the very first mention of light is found in verse number 3. And God said, let there be, Said out loud with me, light. And every since then the Jews have searched for light. At the entrance of thy word is light. Even down through the centuries, even during the time of the Maccabeans, there was the menorah that is still part of the celebration of Hanukkah. It's the celebration of light. The Jews have consistently searched for the light. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, in verse number 2, prophesied that the Messiah would come. And he said that the Messiah would come when the people who walked in darkness would see a great light. As they walked in the darkness, the Messiah would come and that Messiah would be a great light. Well, we know who that Messiah is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, Jesus quoted that prophet's words in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 16. But Jesus, being the perfect Son of God, changed the language of what Isaiah had written. Isaiah said that the people will walk in darkness. Jesus changed it to say that the people which sat in darkness saw a great light. It was so bad in that 400 years of silence between the Testaments. It was so bad in the darkness of the culture that the people just gave up completely, no longer walking, but now sitting down in darkness. But aren't you glad that the light has come and the darkness has been dispelled away? So when he speaks to the Jews, he mentions light. But secondly, he uses this word knowledge. He says that the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge. Now, he's speaking to the Greeks of their day. The Greeks were the the Stoics of the day. They were the philosophers. They were the thinkers of the day. They were constantly constantly seeking after knowledge. So now, he says, if you're looking for knowledge, look no further. You have that treasure within you. And then he uses this third word, the light of the knowledge of the, here it is, glory of God. Now he's speaking to the Romans. The Romans wanted glory. The Roman glory was that of the vast empire that they held across the world. The epic achievements of the Roman, of ancient Rome were both in military and in architecture, and institution. The Colosseum in Rome is an amazing spectacle to see. Historically, the Pax Romana, the the world peace as a result of Roman law, was an amazing, astounding thing to see. But Paul is saying, wait a minute, there is something far better than political, geopolitical peace. It is something that comes only from the prince of peace. And if you're looking for that, you find that. Notice this, verse number 6, in the face of Jesus Christ. Now pause for just a moment and think about this. You have this treasure in an earthen vessel. The treasure of light and darkness. Man, we live in a dark world today, don't we? But we are people of light. We, we live in a world that is seeking after knowledge, looking at, uh, at things that, that we never thought we'd even look at. But the truth is, we have the true knowledge. We, we live in a world that's seeking glory. Celebrity is valued more than anything else. But I'm here to tell you, you have a treasure in, a, in an earthen vessel that the world can never experience in the person of Jesus Christ. It's revealed in His face. Now, I find it interesting. Why does it say His face? Because we identify people by their face. Let's say after the service, you say to me, John, I'd like to know your wife. I I hear she's a very sweet lady and a very beautiful lady. I, I would like to get to know a little bit more. Do you have a picture of her? And I go over to my phone, and I pull out my phone, and I thumb through all these pictures, and I hold up a picture, and it's a picture of my wife's elbow. You look at me and think I was absolutely nuts if I did that. Well, don't you think she has a beautiful elbow? I mean, honestly, she doesn't have that biscuit look on the back side of it, you know, with little cracks and flaky things. And she's got a smooth elbow. She she gets all the Bath and Body Works lotion and does all the things. She has the most beautiful elbow you'll ever see. You, you would cart me out to the Happy House if I'd done that. Well, John, I'd like to see your kids. I, I, I hear you have two sons and twin daughters. I, I'd like to well, yeah, here's my son. I want you to take a look at his ear. Look at how it, it has this unique formation there. And then here's my daughters. Look at their two little baby toes, one on the left, one on the right. Don't they have the cutest little baby toes? You'd think you're crazy. No, if I want to show you what my wife looks like, if I want to show you what my children look like, I'd show you a picture of their face because we identify by the face. You say, I want to know what God looks like. Take a look at the face of Jesus. God is the source of light. God is the source of knowledge. God is the source of glory. And Jesus is that face that we see. Jesus said this in John 14, verse number 9. He that hath seen me hath seen my Father. I think of that story in Matthew chapter 17, when Jesus takes... uh, His intimate three, James and Peter and John, He takes them up to the top of Mount Hermon. And there He rolls back the the, the glory. He allows His glory to be seen and He's transfigured. I want you to notice what happens here. The Bible says that when He was transfigured that His face did shine as the sun and His raiment was as white as the light. Jesus, in that moment, allowed all of the brightness of His glory to be seen. The light was seen. And then, uh, as He was there, the the glory of God overshadowed them. Verse number 5 says that while He was speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. The inference is this, that the very Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God was there in that moment. And then Peter, I love old Peter. Peter is so much like me, he had his foot in his mouth most of the time. He wore peppermint socks because he kept his foot in his mouth. And about that time, as he's enjoying this moment, he's seeing Christ in his transfigured glory. He speaks up and says, it's time for us to have a building program. We need to build three tents to memorialize everything that we've done. And then God speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear you Him." Peter was yapping so much that God from the throne spoke up and said, Will you shut up and listen to my son whom I love? He was informing Peter of a knowledge that Peter had forgotten who Jesus is. And in that moment of transfiguration, there is light. His face did shine as the sun and his, white was as, well, his uh, raiment was as white as light. There is glory, the overshadowing of the glory of God, and there is knowledge. God Himself spoke. That was a special moment. Would you agree with me? Let me tell you something. As special as that was for Peter, James, and John, you have that within you. The light, the glory, and the knowledge of God. The wealth of the treasure leads me to a second thought, the weakness of the vessel. Why would God allow allow an earthen vessel to house the the treasure of heaven? Look again, if you would, please, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and notice what it says here. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. This is in the present tense. You have it now. Now, This is not unusual in in biblical times. People would often place treasures in clay pots. You might write in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah buys a piece of property, and rather than placing the title deed away in a safety deposit box, he places it in an earthen vessel. If you visit the ruins of Israel in Qumran... Uh, The ruins of Qumran, you'll find that in these caves that were there, there were some Bedouin shepherds that were uh, wandering through the fields of Negev, the desert of Negev, obviously, and their boys were throwing rocks into caves. And one day they threw a rock into a cave and they heard something crack and they went in and they found the clay pot that they had broken with the rock and inside it was found the Dead Sea Scroll not unusual in those days for things of value to be placed into clay pots. And now Paul is making it clear to us that it's still true today in the spiritual sense that we have this treasure in earth and vessels. Now, why did he choose the clay pot? There's three things I want you to think about with this. Number one, the, the, the first thing is this is because the clay pot was familiar. It was ordinary. I've had the opportunity to visit uh, Greece twice, been to the ruins of Corinth twice. One of the things that stands out to me is this, that when you go to the museum in Corinth, you're only going to find three silver vessels. They're pulled from the, the Acropolis of Corinth. You only find one single gold vessel that was taken out of the temple of Aphrodite. There's some brass vessels that are common to the Agora, to the marketplace of Corinth. But the thing that stands out to me about when I visit Corinth is this, that everywhere you go throughout all of the ground, there are shards of terracotta pots. Clay pots were everywhere. They were common. They were ordinary. They were familiar to the Corinthians. So when Paul uses this example, he is saying, listen, you have pots everywhere. You have shards of pots everywhere. They're everywhere. They're ordinary. They're average. But God has chosen to place in you, just like that clay pot, a treasure. By the way, you're fearfully and wonderfully made sometimes you feel like you're so ordinary that God can't use you in a world of seven, almost eight billion people. But I'm here to tell you that your ordinariness is not a liability. In fact, it's an asset if you really will allow God to reveal His glory through you. A clay pot was familiar. Secondly, a clay pot was functional. You might write this verse in your notes, 2 Timothy 2, verses 20 through 21. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but of wood and of earth, and some of honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use, and prepared for every good work. The vessel of earth, the earthen vessel, that clay pot that he's writing about when he writes to Timothy would be the waste basket of the house carrying the waste, the trash from the home. But the inference of what Paul is writing is this, that God is willing to take the vessel of dishonor and make it a vessel of honor if it's sanctified, if it is fit for the Master's use. And no matter where you are in life, no matter where you've been, no matter what has happened in your life, God is willing to use you if you're willing simply to allow To be yourself to be used by him. A clay pot is familiar to the Corinthians. It was functional in their home. But here's really, I think, the most important part for me a clay pot is fragile. Think about it that that silver pot that they brought from the Acropolis of of Corinth. You, You could take that pot, drop it on the ground, and it may dent it, it may ding it, but it wouldn't break. One of those clay pots, as as soft, or, or one of those gold pots, I should say, from the temple of Aphrodite, as soft as it may be as gold, you could you could beat it against the wall and it would it would take that shape, but it wouldn't crack, it wouldn't break. But if you know anything about terracotta, those uh, those clay pots, you drop it on the ground and it immediately bursts into multiple shards throughout because it is so fragile. And by the way, you and I are fragile as well. In fact, some of us bear some of the marks of when we've been broken. Can I put it to you this way? It's just us this morning. Is it just you and me here? Say amen if you're with me here. The truth is we're not just clay pots. We're all cracked pots. And By the way, that's what the church is supposed to be. The church is to be the society of cracked pots. I'm not talking about weird, different, odd, freaky, that kind of thing, but I'm talking about broken people. If you're looking for the perfect church, you'll never find it because people have brokenness in their lives. Now, here's the amazing thing. God chooses to use you and me in our brokenness to house the treasure of light and knowledge and glory. That leads me to my third and final point. Those are the sweetest words in any Baptist church. Amen? We may be able to get the Cracker Barrel before everybody else here in just a little bit. Not only the wealth of the treasure that's revealed through the weakness of our vessel, but the wonder of the power. Notice what Paul writes in verse number 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Notice this. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The excellency of the power, the all-surpassing power, is greater than any other power (laughs) and is placed in our clay pot. It's not about the container it's about what's contained in the power of God. This is really key to the mission of the church, isn't it? You see, a church that's going to grow, a church that's going to be blessed, learns very quickly that it's not about us, it's all about Christ. The New Testament wasn't written by the elite of Egypt. It wasn't penned by the elite of Greece or Rome or even Israel. You think about it, the greatest scholars in the world at that time were down in Egypt. That's the home of the greatest library of antiquity in the city of Alexandria, and God passed over Alexandria and all of its citizens to give us the Word of God. The most distinguished philosophers of the time that Paul was writing were there in Athens, and and God decided to pass over those philosophers The most powerful leaders, the movers of men on the geopolitical scale were there in Rome. God never chose to use a political figure. The most brilliant religious theologians and geniuses of the day were in Israel's temple. God never used any of them. He only used clay pots. He passed over Herodias, the historian, and Socrates, the philosopher, and Euclid, the mathematician, and Archimedes, the father of mechanics, and Cicero, the orator, and Virgil, the poet. He passed over them all. Why? Because he was looking for clay pots. Instead, he went to the rural outback of Galilee, the equivalent of East Tennessee. Can I have an amen? Amen. And he found some boys that were fishing on the Tennessee River. It was called the Sea of Galilee. And he said, I have a job for you to do, but all you have to do is follow me. And they were gullible enough to do it. They didn't use the mind of a philosopher to determine all the various outcomes that could be. They didn't evaluate it based on the political scale of where they would be in greater power. They didn't use any of the philosophies of the world. They were just ordinary enough to say, I like what he says and I believe who he is and I will follow him. And Jesus began to develop a motley crew that would go from place to place. He, he picked the social outcast of a zealot who was really a, a terrorist of its time. He, he, he found a tax collector that no one wanted to have anything to do with. He, he found peasants and fishermen. And this was the group, the crew, that God used to change the world. And He's still doing it today. You may be here this morning and you think, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm just not enough. I'm here to tell you, you're qualified. Because when you know you're not enough, God can use you in a powerful way. He's still doing it. I can tell you stories. Having been at the college and related to the college even prior to my position that I have now, I can give you stories of of people who came to college. This past week... Baptist Hospital is building a brand new, multi-million dollar hospital across from our campus, and they were having a ceremony that was there, and I was honored to be there. I want to tell you something. While I was there, as I was sitting with the CEO of Baptist Hospital, after it was over with, one of the men who was part of the construction crew that was part of the ceremony came up, and he shook my hand. and He said, Dr. Lanz, I want you to know I am in the Bible program at Pensacola Christian College. I looked at him, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little taken back. He had tattoos all up and down his neck, on his arm, everywhere. And he shared his story. He said, back in 2018, I was living homeless in my truck in in the state of Arizona. And a preacher came by and started talking to me about Jesus. Pastored East Mesa Baptist Church in Mesa, Arizona. And he said, I got saved. Aren't you glad Jesus still saves souls today? Amen? He said, 2018, I got saved. In 2020, the Lord called me to preach. And he said, I packed up my family he had two of his boys there. They were part of the ceremony. They were in a little uh, elementary-age boys. And, and he had his two boys, and he said, I packed up my family, and we came here. We're preparing for ministry. I work on the construction site during the day. I'm taking courses at night so that I can, can complete my degree. Listen to me, folks. Of all the things I did last week, that was the best thing I experienced all week long. Why? Because it reminds me that God still uses broken people to do great things. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. I am here to tell you that if you're here and you are broken, God wants to use you. Allow me to share with you a fable and I'll be finished. It's a fable from China. Now, you've got to be careful about fables. When preachers tell you fables, you you don't build doctrine on it. But I think it's a a little story that beautifully illustrates what Paul is teaching us here in verse number 7. Forgive my extended reading of this fable. Once upon a time, there was an elderly Chinese woman who owned two large clay pots. She would hang each pot on the ends of a pole, which she carried across her neck. Each day, she would walk from her house to a nearby stream to fetch water, and she would fill up both pots and pick up the pole and walk back to her house. One of the pots had a crack in it, while the other pot was perfect, and it delivered a full pot of water. But at the end of the long walk back to her house, the cracked pot always arrived only half full, and because of the crack, half of the water had leaked out during the track. For two full years, this happened daily, the, the woman arrived home with only one and a half pots of water. Of course, the perfect pot was proud. It had never lost a drop of precious water, but that poor cracked pot, it was ashamed of its imperfection and was miserable. And the crackpot thought to itself it was a complete failure. And this is how you know it's a fable. One day, the crackpot was so tired of failing that it spoke to the woman. And the crackpot said, I am so ashamed of myself because of my crack. This crack in my side causes me to to, to lose the water all the way back to your house. I failed you. I'm so sorry. Maybe you need to replace me with another pot that isn't cracked." The old woman smiled and said gently, Did you ever notice there are flowers on your side of the path and not on the other pot side? I've always known about your flaw. So I planted flower seeds on your side, and, and every day as I've walked back, you've been watering those seeds. And for the past two years, I've been able to pick the flowers to decorate my, ta- my table. But without you being the way you are, there would never have been beautiful flowers to grace my home. Paul puts it this way. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels that are broken, just as Gideon had to break those vessels for the light to shine, so the light and the excellency of the power of God may be seen, not because of us, but through us. So as the president of the Crackpot Society, I welcome you to the fellowship, because I'm the biggest crackpot there is. None of us are perfect, and that qualifies us for God's service. You know, we we in our culture today, we throw away things. It's it's cheaper, it is easier to throw away something and get it new than it is to take care of it. But that's not the way it is in God's economy. God doesn't throw away broken things. God actually uses broken things. I think of Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, he took five loaves of bread from a little lad, and the Bible says that he broke that bread and he multiplied. Have you ever considered that in your brokenness that God may use that to multiply your effectiveness? To do only what God can do through you in your brokenness? What about the woman with the alabaster box? Mary comes with that alabaster box of perfume, but it was only when it was broken that the fragrance filled the house. And when you're broken when you know your frailties, you know your failures, when you are broken, it is then that the fragrance of Christ can be detected in your life. Even Jesus, the perfect Son of God, gathered in that upper room with His disciples, said, this is my body which is broken for you. So broken down, cracked pots, rejoice. Because God uses crackpots so that He and He alone can get the glory. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, in a moment I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask that God will work in our hearts, but I want to ask you a very personal question. They're in the quietness of your heart with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Do you feel like that God can't use you? Regardless of your station or stage of life, I'm here to tell you God can use you if you're willing to give yourself to Him. Be honest. Be humble. And say, Lord, here I am. Use me.